I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have as our guest Dave Essler. Dave is a golf course architect who's designed uh, courses like Black Sheep, Mount Prospect Golf Club, and then done a lot of restorations uh, around the Chicagoland area, including work at Ravislow, um, Glenview Club, uh, Chicago Golf, Lake Geneva, uh, Country Club. Uh, Dave Welcome on. Thanks for having me. There's breakfast included, right? I, I assume that's part of the deal, the fried egg, or is that joke yeah. or anything? Yeah, it, you get a gift card to our, our future breakfast uh, breakfast establishment. It's in the works. You know? Denny's Grand Slam? Yeah, it's, it's going cool. to be called the Woke Yoke. It's a coffee shop and, and breakfast place. <laughs> yeah, you guys are ahead of the curve. Oh, wait, maybe not ahead of the curve on the brunch thing. Yeah, yeah, I heard it's kind of popular on weekends now. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> so, uh, what do you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think you got an interesting background. Dave uh, played golf at Ohio State. Um, still a stick, you know. Don't let him tell you he's not. He, you know, we found out really quickly last Friday we we played that he's a he's a terrific sandbagger. Um, still still rolls in a lot of birdies. It's a gift. So, would love to hear a little bit about you know kind of how you got into golf from the start, and you know your your journey through golf and how you became an architect. The I was born a small no I should kidding uh, the like like everybody uh, of of my era and before I I grew up caddying and uh, my dad was a school teacher and so he had summers off and he worked at a golf course uh, near home in Wakanda. And uh, my brother and I grew up caddying, and you know, I, I'm glad there are still folks who are institutionally and golf professionals who really support that way of life introduction to the game, um, because it really is an, an artery to creating golfers. Um, and with all of the grow the game initiatives, which are terrific. Uh, there's there's really one proven method of getting people hooked on the game and learn all the good things that the game can imbue in a personality and, and revealing all the bad things that uh, the game can uh, show off in a personality. Uh, but the uh, I, I grew up canning and uh, playing on Mondays. Uh, we were fortunate enough to, to get to play golf just about everywhere that was good around Chicago. Uh, on Mondays, back in the days when clubs used to be closed completely on Mondays. What uh, um, what course did you grow up caddying at? Uh, Biltmore Country Club, which okay. was not a great golf course by any stretch. It was close to home, and uh, you know we ended up becoming good friends with uh, Jim Michael and his family, and spent a lot of summers hanging out there. And um, you know, 
learned all the important lessons of golf, how to swear, how to throw clubs, how to, you know, flick matches in the Caddyshack. Um, you know, all the, all the good lessons that you kind of saw in the Caddyshack movie. But uh, we, we were really fortunate because we, we would go up and play back in, you know, 1975 to 1985 uh, when golf in Chicago had a, actually golf courses in Chicago had a better reputation than the reality. Um, I mean, back then, probably the only really, really good golf courses were Shore Acres and Chicago Golf Club, um, mostly because they hadn't been touched. Uh, most everything else at that period uh, in Chicago used to have a great reputation, even better than New York, which was, you know, I don't want to sound like a homer, but the truth is it, it just wasn't uh, comparable. Uh, there was a quantity, but not a great quality. And, and the quality's improved quite a bit. A lot of the restorations and um, less so new development. Uh, but in the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of really good work on the restoration front. But um, so we played everywhere and I got to see everything, um, just about everything on Mondays. And then I played a little bit and got to play in some really good tournaments uh, at some, some really good golf courses and saw things that, you know, a public kid wouldn't otherwise uh, have a chance to be exposed to on both the architecture and uh, kind of the socioeconomic front. Mm-hmm. So then uh, you got good at golf and you went to Ohio State? I got adequate at golf. Uh, I was I was not as good as I thought I was. Um, and, and I always, I always knew I wanted to be an architect for whatever reason. Uh, grandpa was an engineer. Uncle was, uh, an architect, architect. Um, not just a guy who waves his arm around, arms around like, like we do uh, as golf course architects. But, uh, so there must've been something in the DNA, I guess, uh, but I, I, I always knew I wanted to be involved in golf course architecture and, you know, wrote the fifth grade report and all that silly stuff. Um, and used to draw, draw golf holes waiting to get out uh, on Saturday mornings as a, as a young looper. Um, got decent enough to, to have a chance to play at a Big Ten school. Um, when I got there, of course, figured out that there was a whole bunch of guys who were really, really good. Uh, better than I was, and um, grinded it out, and had a had a decent career, got a you know respectable education, and uh, played for a little while just because I felt like I was supposed to, and had a little success. But frankly, um, like most of us, figure out wow, everybody else is really good. I thought I was, but yeah, that that's who. Who were some of the guys uh, you played with back then that you know people would know? And like, was, was there when was your moment when you really knew you know I need to get a real job? It, my, my moment was actually earlier than I realized. Uh, it was probably my first or second. It's probably my second year in college, uh, maybe my third year in college. Um, we played with guys like Scott Verplank. Um, on our team, we had Chris Perry and Clark Burroughs. Um, they, in one year, in the same year, they both played uh, in the Masters. Um, and so a couple of us actually got to play in a spring tournament um, because those guys were busy. And I, I remember, um, you know, just watching 
guys hit shots that I just wasn't capable of. Um, I spent some time, my brother and I worked at Kemper Lakes, and they used to have, uh, oh, shoot, what was it? The uh, wasn't the World Series of Golf, but there were four guys, the major champions. And uh, I caddied in the Greg Grand Norman Slam, Street. right? Grand Slam of Golf, exactly. And I think MCI was involved with it somehow. Um, and I remember caddying for Norman, and we played a lot of golf and ran carts. Uh, there was a fellow named Bob Spence who was just a gentleman of the game, played exceptionally well, was a terrific marketer, was a fantastic teacher, you know, cut from the mold back when the golf pro was the guy at, at a private club um, because he knew everything. Uh, could fix clubs, could knew all the rules, um, knew a little bit of something about agronomy. And so Bob took my brother and I under his wing at Kemper Lakes back when it was just nine holes. Anyway, fast forward. So I watched Greg Norton. We, we play a lot of golf at Kemper Lakes, and you figure out where you hit the golf ball on certain conditions. And I just watched Norman fly it 65 yards further than my Sunday punch, and I thought, yeah, he can do stuff that I can't do. And um, you know, that was the beginning of the end <laughs> of, of, a, of a largely unfruitful playing career. Um, but the good thing about those exposures to to competition is you meet a bunch of guys who are really good guys um, and you get to see places in, in, at least in my industry, you get to see places that you good, ugly, or, you know, just mediocrity. Um, what uh, lessons about golf course, about golf courses. What, uh, what was your favorite uh, course you got to compete at? Like from like a, from a competitive uh, golf standpoint. I love playing at the old Scarlet. Uh, for anybody who played in the Kepler, um, and it was it was it was home, of course. It was uh, Robert Hunter routing. I'm sorry, it was a McKenzie routing that Robert Hunter had finished. Um, it has since been substantially altered by Mr. Nicholas, um, but it was big, brutish, and nuanced at the same time. Um, it only really had one awkward hole, and that was 18. It kind of still exists. It was a big, hard dog like left. But for a lot of guys, for your listeners, um, I'm guessing there's quite a few who played there uh, before Nicholas um, modified the golf course or updated it, whatever they, however they packaged it. Um, but it was so good. Um, it would test everything you had. Um, and, and I learned a lot about course management there. Um, <laughs> it never really got put to good use. Mm-hmm. So with, with that, I, I, I'm always, I, you know, one of the things that always makes me sad is when, when you lose like truly great golf courses. And from everything I've heard about the old Scarlet, it was one of those. And, you know, now it's, it's kind of, you know, a little bit more contrived. It's got the, you know, segmented off greens and, and, um, and I, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, in terms of like what it lost the most of what, what kind of was the, and what was the, you know, impetus? Was it just because of Jack Nicholas's design career? Like, you know, like what, how did this all happen? And why did somebody think it was a good idea? Well, I, I, I honestly don't know the politics behind it. Um, but obviously he's a ridiculous force in the game. Uh, let alone in Columbus, Ohio. 
Um, so I, I, there was an inevitability about uh, Mr. Nicholas and his team being involved. We actually applied, um, made a submittal, and uh, among, I'm sure, other folks, I assume, uh, Herdson and Fry did as well, and a, and a bunch of guys, because it was a it was a plum of a job. But um, he'd have been foolish to think that, that he wasn't going to end up doing the job anyway. Um, I honestly don't know. I, I, I assume that it, the response was largely um, agronomically. The place was never great uh, when I was there, and I suspect that contributed as well as the the ridiculous distances that the golf ball goes. Um, you know, a really good example of that is a place that you and I talked about last week, a place called Bellevue Biltmore, which I think is, is not long for the world. It, it's a real Donald Ross golf course down in Clearwater, and we were fortunate enough to to be involved in, in the restoration and rebuilding of it, kind of in a design-build approach a couple of years ago. Um, and it turns out that um, one of the local rich guys is going to buy it from the city, which is kind of unfathomable, but that the, that the city would sell uh, an open-space asset like that. But you know, those, those make me really sad when a, a really – ideal niche golf course that has some history, has some architectural integrity, um, disappears. And uh, I suppose part of it is progress, and we've lost a lot of them. But um, when, when you lose them for no good reason, it, it just seems unnecessary. And, uh, you know, not that I'm the doyen of all things style, but, I'm pretty sure that what used to be at the Scarlet Course is probably better than what's there now. Um, and what is at Bellevue Biltmore today is probably better uh, than what will be there now. If you happen to be a high net worth individual, that may be arguable. But for the mass market of the, as, as Mike Geiser calls it, for the retail golfer, um, it's an unfortunate trend. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I've played that Bellevue Biltmore course um, when I was in Tampa. Had no expectations uh, of it going in, and, and I was blown away. It was probably like three, four years ago um, for a bachelor party, and or not bachelor, wedding. Um, and, mm-hmm. it, you know, it has a volcano hole. It's just got some great quirk. It's got the, it's just got the Ross, old school Ross feel that, you know, was, you know the the trademark playability for everybody, but the nuance and the you know the detail that requ- that and strategy required to score is so high. You know, it's a it's a terrific golf course that serves a a, a fantastically important niche, particularly in Florida, where it's cart ball and um, you know water everywhere. That that place has very little uh, water in play and. Uh, easily walkable, very accessible and fun. And, and we, we imbued it in the last year, maybe what was it been two summers ago now with a, a good bit more Ross um, and some quirk, like you said, added some center fairway bunkers and some strategy to the second dot on the par fives. Um, but uh, that happens and, and the, the ship is sail. It's just, uh, you know, so, the good news is there are so many more golf courses around that are being restored to their you know, golden age 
um, characteristics, and, and that's the that's the good news, the upside of this, of that story, I guess, suppose. Yeah, uh, I'm curious, you know, like if uh, say you know it, Scarlet, like say you know 20 years down the line, it it, it there becomes a movement to restore it back to uh, what it once was like, how, how, how far has it moved from there? Like if it was on a sliding scale of one to 10, you know, one being, you know, as far away as it could possibly be, you know, like it would, it, you know, is it possible to bring it back? It is. Uh, the only hole to my memory that, that physically changed was the fourth. Um, and I think the green is a lot further uh, oh, yeah, about a that par, par yeah. five. The par five. The par five was one of the best par fives. Again, you got to remember it was um, baladas and steel shafts and, and persimmon and, and take that into consideration. Um, well, it also... old fourth with new equipment would be, you know, there's there's lots of guys who would drive a wedge into that into that old hole with today's equipment. So Well, um, it doglegs left, I understand too. That. Which isn't uh, yeah. isn't is it doesn't really fit Jack's eye, you know. He's got to have something <laughs> with a with a fade approach, right? Yeah, every once in a while you got to go uh, play against type, I guess. But um, yeah, he that was that was certainly uh, his mo early on in his career, and um, I, I don't know that it still is or universe that that's a valid argument uh, universally, but. Um, yeah, early on that was certainly happening, um, but we—I I suppose we all do that to some to some degree. Um, I, I find myself doing some of the, you know, and I make a cognizant effort every time I go to a job to try to do what's right for the project and not what I have done, um, and that really puts some folks at unease. Uh, and we had a chance to get hired by. Uh, a, a, a nice private club in town. I said, I really don't know what we're going to do. Um, I need some time to think about what you guys are in the marketplace and what this golf course should be. And, um, you know, I tend to fall back on the best architect who may have ever worked on a property. For example, uh, when we redid Ravislow, it was an easy one. Um, when we read, it was obviously Donald Ross was in and out of there. Um, and when we redid Park Ridge many years ago, uh, Bill Langford had, had done some work there. Uh, and so we largely went with that flavor. We just redid, uh, again, on the design, design build side, we redid Riverside. We did a bunch of the bunkers um, at Riverside, and it's an easy decision to make. Uh, we didn't move any golf holes or anything. Uh, but of the things we touched, we did so in the Bill Lankford style. And um, that's an easily defensible, I can sleep at night saying, you know, this is what we're doing um, and this is why we're doing it. And uh, I, I can remember my education early on back in Columbus is you better have some really good reasons to do what you're doing Um and I think there's a lot of guys now who just work to, to find work. Um, there are two or three good restoration folks out there who look at the history. And, and there's guys who get really serious about the, the historical data 
that's not me. I, I honestly just don't have time to be that guy. Um, but you better well, if you, if you happen to be working on a building that, that Frank Lloyd Wright worked on or Louis Sullivan worked on, boy, you, you'd be hard-pressed to move away from that uh, pedigree. And, and I kind of take the same approach, whether it was our early work at Chicago Golf Club when I was consulting there, uh, you know, the Glenview Club, we try to do uh, a variation on the Flynn, and, and obviously they've changed horses a couple of times now. Um, but that's a great old club that uh, ha- has a terrific history, and I, have, I still have a lot of friends there. Um, but we tried to do what we felt was right for them, um, and that, that's typically what we try to do. You mentioned Lake Geneva Country Club. Um, you know, we, we work there as well as Bigfoot down the lake, uh, you know, a couple miles away, and they could not be more different places. They're physically different properties with different histories. Um, they both tend to be weekend kind of clubs, but uh, to do the same thing at both of those properties, like many architects would, would be doing a complete disservice to to them, to each one of those guys. And so you can go three miles from Lake Geneva Country Club to Bigfoot and see dramatically different aesthetics and, and design goals and objectives, mm-hmm. which is really fun for me. I, I, I would I would have to do something else if you told me that we're just going to do flashy bunkers or grass-faced bunkers everywhere. Um, you know, it's great. It's a lot of fun to, to go through the, you know, actual exercise and sometimes the, the golf course archaeological discovery of figuring out what a place should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like I've seen, um, you know, a, a good sampling of your work and it's all been different. You know, you have Ravislow. I think that the bunkers there, you know, you've got kind of grass face bunkers and they really push mm-hmm. up into the greens. And I mean, that that job is a really good one. I, I always I always think about the fourth hole there, that par three. And it's it's just it's a it's such a pain in the ass, that hole because of the bunkers. <laughs> It is exactly that, and that was the one. Uh, you're probably old enough, and 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 some of the guys listen uh, played in. You know, remember Namaga back when they used to be junior golf, and it became the IJGA. And um, you know, guys who played in the Western Am uh, along the way. There was a guy named Chuck Eckstein who was uh, uh, WGA CDGA official, and Chuck was an early member, and his family was there. And he goes, "This is the one hole, David, that." Uh, you know, we know that Donald Ross did, and they had no budget. You know, that was our first construction job with uh, Vintage Golf Construction, which is kind of the build portion of Esther Golf Design slash Vintage Golf Construction Design build um, that, that we do. And I'm, I get on a machine from time to time, um, and I'm, I'm not bad, but... Uh, that was our very first construction job, uh, and it was so much fun. They had zero dollars, uh, but we got an awful lot of work. Really, I think, important work uh, done for not a lot of money. And uh, number four was one of those that had to be just right. And while you could literally play ping pong back and forth with sand shots if the greens are fast, uh, or if you're not skilled, that's what that hole was, and we just put it back the way it was. Um, 
but that's it. The Ravels was a fascinating. If you look at the old aer- aerials, there were 200 plus bunkers on that property. Um, some were massive, some were tiny. Um, and, and while we didn't, have, they didn't have the dollars to put back everything. Um, we gave a, a fair smattering of the variety that was out there. There's a there's a good size, ten thousand square foot bunker with islands on the 16th hole, which is. I, I don't know if it's a Ross Green, but it sure feels like a Ross Green. It's kind of like hitting it, uh, you know. It's the impossible. Top, the top of a cereal bowl. It's yeah, impossible to hit the ball close there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it, if you did one of those today, you, you'd kind of get skewered. And um, the concept is great. It's just a little bit. It's turned up to 11, a little bit too much. Um, but since it's been there for 65 or uh, 90 years, it's accepted. Um, and, and we, you know, then we, uh, the previous hole, we, we've got a little pot bunker with stairs going down into it and, and everything between, um, some great little chocolate drops around the greens. Um, so, that just kind of speak to that turn of the century character. So I'm, uh, kind of curious, you know, with, with all your, the restoration work you've done and it, you know, if I, you say you're, you know, I'm a, I'm a GM or I'm a, you know, head of a greens committee at a, you know, mm-hmm. old school course. Um, what are kind of like the, the easiest things you can do to, you know, get a little bit back out of your course and make it significantly better with, you know, a tight budget? Yeah, the, the couple, the low hanging fruit tends to be uh, mowing patterns. Uh, and that can be anything from, um, you know, pushing the fairway out in front of an old bunker or you don't even sometimes need to report, restore the sand in the bunker because that costs money. And um, depending on where you are within the Chicago district, um, you may have a whole bunch of money or you may not have a whole bunch of money, but you may still have a significant, uh, a historically and architecturally significant asset. Um, and, and sometimes just simply not touching the ground itself, but pushing the, the bent grass in front of an old feature, whether it was a series of chocolate drops or an old bunker, um, gives the illusion that that mound cuts into the fairway. Even if it cuts into the fairway at the, God forbid, the 150 yards off the tee or you know, at, at quote-unquote the wrong distance, and everybody wants to put bunkers out there at 285. Um, or, or nowadays it's even three bills. Um, but those features that help frame the view, um, the more you can accent them in, in various committees, meetings and board meetings, it's, I always kind of give the analogy of, you know, so many of our golf course fairways have become runways because they've become over planted and, and under mode. Um, you know, that's kind of the effect of the mowing pattern in, in the fairway, but, when you have the opportunity up by the green uh, to start to mow around the outside of bunkers, and we did that a lot at Belfry Biltmore, and um, partially because it was easy down there because it was all Bermuda, um, where up here you have to consider, well, if we're going to do that, we have to take the bluegrass and change it to bentgrass typically, uh, but not always, uh, and you have to be a little more cognizant of surface drainage and top dressing and all those things, but just shortening the height of cut around the green um, 
16 at uh, Ravislow is a good example. You know, you mow all the way around that, and it's a little bit more equitable and a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you go 100 yards and you try to mow around the 14th green at Ravislow, it's not quite as interesting. Um, in terms of equitable, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's just because of the fill platform and the, and the green surrounds, sometimes it's a it's a fantastic way to go about it and sometimes it's not yeah um, and but it, but regardless when you do that it's very inexpensive having said that uh you know maybe number two is tree removal um but that is far and away the most politically charged uh potential third rail of uh golf course modifications and people uh, people love their trees you know they do and (laughs) yeah yeah and how many times i've heard well it's always been this way well no actually in 1927 this photograph right here um it has not always been that way um you know i've got photographs of oak park country club i know you'll be playing there in the red next week is it next week yeah um next week oh there's there's the old original pre white person settlement oak trees up to the east of the clubhouse um, in the photograph. And there's some other things that are out there, but there's not much. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a funny I story, work, work but, it's, uh. but it's, you know, people believe that it's always been that way, but it hasn't anyway. Sorry. Uh-huh. I, I was at a meeting at, uh, at where I play golf, and I guess uh, apparently our, our superintendent met one of uh, our old superintendents, um, and I forgot what the year span was, but the first thing mm-hmm. he said to him was, I, I'm sorry. And he said, for what? <laughs> and he goes, you know, I got ordered uh, to plant 4,000 silver maple trees. Because we mm-hmm. got a great deal on them, so you know, you look at right. our course. It's just, you know, you, you see these old pictures. There's not a tree in sight, maybe one or two, and uh, now mm-hmm. we we've got one of the most heavily treed golf courses in uh, in Chicago. And you know, I'm sitting, yep. I've been sitting there banging a. You, we got to cut these down, and and sure enough, like in the 70s, 4,000 trees were planted. Oh yeah, yeah, and and bad trees. I mean, oak trees would be one thing. Hickory. You know, yellow wood, native plant material to Illinois. And I'm not cheerleading for tree planting. God knows that. Um, but there are places to plant trees. There are. And there are the correct trees to plant. Um, willows and silver maples and Norway maples that cast an incredible amount of shade are not the right ones. Um, you know, to your point, I, and it's not the 70s and 80s. It's not the effect of the... Uh, um, Elm, Dutch elm disease, uh, which has now kind of manifested itself in the autumn purple ash or the uh, ash borer, um, you know, it's still happening today. I, just last year, one of my clients uh, who has a uh, nurseryman as a member uh, said, you know, that this fellow wants to donate 35 trees to the club. Um, we want you to figure out where to put them. And, you know, I'm getting to the point in my career where I'm a little bit more blunt. Um, you know, you try to politically couch it. And I said, the best place to put them is in his nursery. You know, you don't want them. Um, 
you want the opposite. You want them to donate chainsaw and stump grinding time. Uh, that would be a good use of his, you know, and, and trust me, I, I said it more. Polit- yes, delicately. Apathy, yeah. Delicately, because you have to, um, unless you happen to be the benevolent dictator in a club, and those places almost do not exist anymore. Um, but it's still happening, and yeah. there are still places where um, – there are guys who, who want to plant a whole bunch of trees uh, and lose sight of the fact that it's, the trees are there to support the golf. The golf is not there to support the trees. Um, and like I said, there are, there are on most properties, there are plenty of places to plant some trees for specific purposes, whether yeah. it's safety or controlled views. But um, to make the golf course harder, quote unquote, tends to not be one of the right ones. Yeah, I, I don't. I I firmly believe it doesn't make the golf course harder because it just thins out the grass. It it makes it harder yeah. for the the you know average player, but for the for the better player, it thins out the grass and lets you control your shot into the green. Versus you know the worst thing is thick grass. You know for a good player. Yep. Um, yep. So you know you've worked with worked a, across a bunch of different architects here in Chicago and um, you know down in in, in Florida. I'm kind of, I'm curious, you know, who you've kind of come to found is like the underappreciated genius of the bunch. Um, and it could be one, it could be, you know, a couple, uh, just, you know, one that doesn't come up often that, you know, really was a, a guy that got it. Yeah. They, they, to me, the guy who got it and, and he's getting, they, they're getting more attention was Bill Langford, uh, Langford and Merle. Um, I'd love to have something more obscure. Uh, Herbert Strong did a lot of really great work, uh, almost none of which is anywhere near us. Um, but but around these parts, um, for my money, uh, everybody knows Donald Ross now and, and obviously did a great deal of fantastic work. Um, but when we've gone to a property where uh, Langford and Moreau have been um, – it's always a surprise uh, how good the work is. Um, and part of it, I suspect, was the influence of, of Charles Blair McDonald uh, and, and their kind of oeuvre of archetype golf holes. Uh, you see Langford and Moreau plop those down from time to time, whether it's a Redan, whether it's an Eden or a Sahara. Um, probably because Langford played at Yale and was exposed to those golf holes. Uh, incredibly dramatic. They, uh, they're they're, they're, they're bold. An amazing set of golf. It's an amazing collection of golf holes and a collection overall, uh, a place overall. The individual holes are little bitty fabulous pearls that combine into just an extraordinarily beautiful necklace. Um, and there are a lot of places like that. Fisher's Island, you know, one of my favorite places to pick off on the planet. Same kind of thing. Each one of those holes, if they existed on their own, would be just a joy to play one time. But then when you string 18 of them together, it's it's just a magnificent experience. Mm-hmm. So in terms of just kind of when you're laying out a course and, you know, we played Black Sheep, we played 18 it. And, and, and you know, it just kind of it flows mm-hmm. together and there's, you know, there's 
there's lulls and and highs. You know, it, it never felt like we were playing. Well, thanks. You know, yeah, and, and it didn't seem like you moved a ton of dirt there. Like how how do you go about? you know, laying out a golf course and, and plotting out, you know, the greens. Do you, do you walk the property a ton? Like, you know, I'm, I, I'm always curious as to your philosophy. Well, I, I haven't had the opportunity to, to do enough of them, obviously. Um, and, and you talk about music artists who, uh, you know, their first album may be spectacular and then, oh my gosh, you got to do another one. And then you really see what the person's got. Um, we've had a little bit of that opportunity, but to, 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 but black sheep was really the first big one. And, uh, you know, I didn't spit out all of the ideas on that one, but on that particular, and the thing that I, I, I believe is between, you know, in the world of architectural geekdom is often overlooked and misunderstood is the external influences, whether it's an owner, a couple of owners, the overall business plan, the site itself, the regulatory issues. Um, if there's a world in which it is extremely difficult to compare apples and apples, um, it's golf uh, and golf course architecture because no two sites, whether it's they're immediately proximate to one another. For example, I don't know, Sunset Valley and Bobolink, they share a common border. Um, but they couldn't be different, more different products, different end users, um, different original architects. Um, and, and so to, to, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to say, boy, this was really successful if that guy's a good architect because you could never replicate the same conditions. Let's say that, uh, you know, Tom Doak gets a project and then you erase Tom Doak's work and then Dave Esler gets a project and you compare them side, the same project, you compare them side by side. It never happens. Um, and so the best you can do kind of is look at each site and each project and each set of conditions um, and hope that you can get the best out of them. Uh, Black Sheep was obviously a, a, a good, great opportunity for me uh, to do some really, really good work Um mostly because we had a pretty free hand uh, in routing the place and sequencing the holes and, and determining the overall style, um, which was the point of conversation uh, early on. Um, you know, I said, Vince, we need to, we need to think of this place unlike any other place in Chicago at the time. Um, not the same conversation we had at the club, which didn't obviously end as well for me. Um, but I, I view that particular experience as a badge of honor that I, I knew what I wanted to do. They didn't like it, and I feel bad that it, it didn't live in the world, in the words of H.S. Colt. But um, to circle back to, to Black Sheep, but we were fixed with the clubhouse site, so that was a given. Um, in the middle of the site, there was a road, and the utilities were already extended, and we, so we weren't going to move anything um, in terms of infrastructure. Um, and so it was a matter of starting from the high point, uh, which we didn't have the ability to change, nor necessarily what I've wanted to change in that particular case. And how do we move in and out and around so that it's interesting in terms of whole type, whole direction, because obviously the wind, you know, if it's windy at your, if it's a little windy at your house, it's blowing out there. And so uh, we've got 60 to 
in some cases, 100-yard-wide fairways, particularly on holes 19 through 27, uh, where you're really exposed and you need that width. On a day like today that you and I are talking, there's probably a two-mile-an-hour wind, but out there it may be five or ten. Um, but when it blows 30 and it's firm and fast, the ball runs out and you need that room to so that you can play golf. Um, so that was an easy decision to make. Hand-in-hand, hand, that came with triple and quadruple and sometimes quintuple with irrigation. Um, and then the overall aesthetic, it was, you know, we need to be thinking about prairie dunes. Um, we, we're not quite sand hills. We don't have that magnitude of landscape, but I felt like prairie dunes was a pretty good placeholder in terms of early on meetings and, and concept, we need to restore the native landscape. Um, you know, when I first walked the property, I think I told you this, or I uh, maybe somebody else that week that, uh, we, we drove up to the property and I made the classic non architect marketing mistake and said, you know, Mr. Solano, you haven't, you haven't actually bought this property. You haven't closed on this property yet. Have you? Uh, because when you're driving up to the site from the, from outside, it doesn't look like much. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is completely the other end of the spectrum. I'm sure you've read it 5,700 times in Golf Digest that uh, the architect proclaimed that this was the greatest site he or she had ever seen for golf. Yeah. Um, you know, I I just probably had an annual you know, moment and went, what are you thinking of? This is not the site you want. Uh, but he had already closed and, and looked past my... Hey, you were uh, being honest. Honesty pays I off. I was, you know. But then when you, well, yeah, occasionally, uh, have you, when are you getting married? Uh, uh, September. I'm just, you know, speaking to the honesty question. Yeah. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, I've, I've been married almost 30 years. Um, anyway, the, uh, so I, you know, recovered with, uh, Vince and said, you know, we're, you're very, for, once you get out on the property, there's quite a bit of physical movement and it's, it's a pretty good site. It's not a great site, but it's a pretty good site. And uh, I said, you know, we're not going to have to spend a lot of money to build this golf course. Um, we're going to have to shape the greens. We're going to have to drain some areas. We're going to build the tee complexes, but we're not stripping the, the topsoil from the entire property. Just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And so with the exception of the bottom lands where there's, you know, we had to build a lake. I tried to get that out of play, um, but we had to build an irrigation lake, and there really wasn't anywhere to hide it. Um, so, and I'd love to be able to have been able to hide it um, on that piece of ground. It just wasn't going to happen. And so we incorporated it on a, on a couple of holes. The only three holes on the property that play in the, the generally the same cardinal direction, four, five, and six, could not be more different in terms of the type of golf holes they are. Um, but every other golf hole there changes direction with respect to the wind. You know, plays a little uphill, downhill, and, and you do those permutations, and, and yes, you do walk the site a lot, um, and that that's just part of the process. You know, the the Corn Crenshaw guys are notorious for doing that, um, and yes, that's 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 the way to learn the site. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and get the best out of it is to spend time with it. Topo maps are really a great starting point, but they are a starting point. And, and, and not the whole process by any stretch. So, you know, it, moving to another project, which I think, um, sure. you know, I've got a lot of, uh, 
readers and listeners I know that love template holes and template hole golf, you, you know, you uh, won the Mount job Prospect. for Mount Prospect, which, you know, it, yep. if you were going to describe the, the plot of land, I think it it's flat. It's very constricted mm-hmm. and, you yep. know, it doesn't possess a lot of features that, that people would be jumping over the moon to get, to get. But I think, it, you know, in this, in this instance, um, you know, you see, you saw with a lot of Rainer courses where, you know, he took flat pieces of land and made them really good golf courses by, by doing, you know, sure. building spectacular green complexes and, and using these surefire, you know, hole templates, um, you know, to perfection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talk us a little bit through the, the thought process and evolution of Mount Prospect. Mount, Mount Prospect was just a, a fantastic prop project for me to be involved because uh be, with which to be involved uh, partially because uh, you know i i had tangentially had uh a, a real connection to the place um like i said we played everywhere and there were a bunch of guys growing up and on, on mondays not that that was a private club but it actually it was a private club many 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 years ago in the 20s um and I had known a lot of guys who grew up there and, and went through the high school and the IGGA ranks. Um, and I knew it as a place that created golfers, not unlike um, Village Links, you know, uh, David Glott and Gary Pins and Doug Pins. And um, there were a lot of guys who would just hang out there and play golf and evolved into competitive golfers. And uh, Mount Prospect was also one of those places. Um, and, and so I also knew, I, I, I felt like Mount Prospect was very much a, as close to a kind of a private club, you know, public setting. I mean, it's, it, it's in the neighborhood. And, uh, when I went back, I think for the second or third meeting, there were guys walking down the sidewalk with their pull carts to go to the golf course. And while that's, almost a Scottish aesthetic, uh, you know, the club in the village that's open to the public. Um, and so, so it was kind of an interesting flavor. Um, in a, every medium to small town should have a Mount Prospect golf course, um, a place to grow golfers and kind of a community center away from the community center. Um, and so it was really important for me to, because they had one of the most dangerous, uh, driving ranges and under fitted, uh, facilities imaginable. Um, they had some people get hit and, and fortunately, you know, no legal action, but it was a liability. Um, and so we looked at it as, how do we figure out there are so many high school kids who can learn to play golf there and they, they use it like crazy and they've been very successful. So we wanted to find a place where there could be a substantial practice facility. And and fortunately after a whole bunch of iterations and permutations of routing and uh, working within the floodplain and uh, we, we figured out how how to build, you know, half an acre range to a 300 yard long range. And the thinking was, what's the, what's the least valuable thing on the property? Typically, it's the floodplain, um, and in that case, it was the horrible 
90 degree dogleg right 18th hole. Um, and I don't know if you remember it, but it was not a great hole. Uh, and so I thought, well, how can we take the liability, which is a very awkward finishing hole that floods, uh, and turn it into how can we reuse the space, kind of co-opt some of the maintenance facility space. And so we landed with a driving range there, took the old short game area, made a brand new hole um, to the east end, ended up having to move a couple of golf holes. And so, um, you know, I tried not to do that, but we ended up with a couple of big holes on the back end because there were a whole bunch of holes in the back that were 360-yard holes. And while I have no problem with that, you don't need six of them on one nine. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly retained uh, the front nine routing, but um, really am very proud to have created a, a terrific practice facility where, you know, for the next 100 years, folks will learn to play golf there. So that, and we went there, you know, opening day and a couple of days after, and there's a million kids running around. And, and as I get older, that's obviously becomes of more value. Um, but with respect to the golf course and the design decisions that were made, um, you know, nobody asked what we were going to do in terms of style along the process. They needed to redo the irrigation system. They needed a lot of drainage work. Um, and so eventually, collectively, they landed on, we need to rebuild the golf course. Um, and as much as we can add these other assets, the practice facility, the short game area, massive putting green, a, a, a range a range tee and a short game area at the end for the high schoolers, um, if we can get all that stuff too, it's a total slam dunk. Uh, we were able to do it, but nobody ever really asked about style of the golf course. And so, you know, we had done Ravislow and, and uh, it had become open to the public. And so there was suddenly a Donald Ross golf course that was available in Chicago to the public golfer. And, you know, I grew up playing golf uh, as a public guy, like I said, looping and, um, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had a Seth Rayner style golf course for the public golfer who will never get invited to Chicago Golf Club, will never see Shore Acres, would never see uh, Camargo or Blue Mound or something like that, have no idea what that is. Wouldn't it be a cool, and I don't really mean to sound pompous, but wouldn't it be a cool gift to give the public golfer that style of architecture? And so we just kind of started down the road quietly, um, and it wasn't until very late in the design process that uh, Brett Barcel, who was the director of golf there and a very sharp fella, looked at me and said, you know, the 16th hole seems an awful lot like a Biarritz. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think we were laying it out, uh, it was being staked, or maybe it was even shaped at that point, um, but I think it was after construction had started, but I could be wrong. Um, and I said, you know, Brett, it is. And of course, <laughs> being a modern golf professional, he understood the marketing value of it, um, that they are the guys who have a publicly accessible Rainer slash McDonald, more Rainer, obviously. Um, and he said, this is great. So this really is a reverse for Dan, and this really is the road hole. Uh, and I said, yep, and yep, and this is the Eden, and this is the double punch bowl. And, um, 
anyway, so it went on and on. And there's one variation in there that, that you, you know, the astute listeners and arch- architectural geeks will pick, and that's the ninth hole, which is more of a, a tenth of Riviera. Um, mm-hmm. But at, at 200, and I guess it goes 305 from all the way back. Um, there's a lot going on in the green complex, but that's kind of the only one that's not a double plateau or kind of one of the, the, the archetype uh, Ross or uh, uh, Rainer McDonald. What, uh, which of the, the templates did you have kind of the most fun building? You know, which, what, you know, if you uh, had to say your, your, or what is your favorite one? You know, if you, if you love them all the same, that's fine. Yeah. I, um, I love the ninth hole. Um, partially, we made a couple of clay models. Um, I have some pictures, but for, for whatever, they, I don't think any of them survived. But I, I thought, you know, we're doing a really old school golf course here. So unfortunately, or fortunately, the way it worked out, we had a great contractor in, in um, Wadsworth Golf Construction. They did and just a spectacular shaper. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe aside from the fact that we had to bid, had to create a whole bunch of very detailed bid documents so that it was open for public bidding. Um, maybe we should use some old school design methods. And so I started sketching a little bit, which I, you know, do from time to time. And I thought, well, I seen the plasticine models that, uh, some of these guys used to create and it was so much fun. And, and the one I stuck on was nine. Um, and it's not really the, the drivable, uh, Riviera tenth, but it, it, it's of that flavor. Um, it's kind of a combination of, uh, Riviera 10 and, and a couple other holes, uh, the sixth green on it from piping rock. Uh, but that's a wonderful hole. I love the punch bowl, the completely new, uh, 11th hole is, is the one really big boy hole on the back nine. Um, kind of looks like the Edward Monk screaming face uh, as you stand at it from the fairway. Um, and uh, I love the double punch bowl on, on uh, 13. 13, yeah. Uh, uh, which is, it's not a great punch bowl on the front, but it's a, it's not a, a deep one, but it, you know, you get that flavor. Um, 15 is 15 turned out to be a pretty good hole, but we we're kind of hamstrung by the, uh, the drainage considerations and some of the permitting issues, uh, in, in Cook County and well, just anywhere in the, the metro area. Uh, there's a whole bunch of water that we have to take on from the West of the property. And so we might've liked to do a little bit, something different in front of the green there, but it's a fun little par five. Um, 16 and 17 are fabulous. Uh, 16s may be a little bit too difficult. 17 may be a little bit easy, uh, but it's a nice balance. And then 18 is a very, very soft Alps hole, which uh, not a lot of folks pick up on. We, we hid the front right part of the green with a mound right in front of a bunker, which of course is a modern no-no uh, mm-hmm. to intentionally hide a bunker. But you know that school of architecture is anything but modern, uh, and so. Uh, while I would have loved to do a full-on Alps with a 12-foot high or 15-foot high mound in front of green, it's it's public golf, and, and you can't you know I would have felt really scared about 
intentionally hiding people from, uh, from view and, and the, the dangers that come with that. So we did kind of a, a soft uh, 3-2 kind of mm-hmm. uh, Alps. So, but uh, I, I don't know what a favorite is. Uh, yeah. There's there's some really really good ones out there though, and I'm yeah. I'm awful proud of that work. Yeah, I think it's uh, for everybody that's either Chicago based or if you're coming to Chicago, I always recommend if you're if you're looking for some public places to play, you know, two of my favorites are happen to be Ravislow, which uh, Dave redid all, all the bunkering on, and then uh, Mount Prospects, like a super cool public course i think it's like 30 i think i paid 35 bucks to play it last fall i walked it and you know three three and a half hours with uh and uh you know it's a it's just you know it's template golf uh for the public which is super cool um so your your big new project uh that you're working on is uh pacific gales and uh it's a coastal um, you've got Oregon coast and, you know, pretty close in proximity to Bandon. Um, and I know it's been kind of like a, a long journey to get to the point now where you're, you've got permit, <laughs> you've got permitting done and, and you're getting close to breaking, bre- breaking ground. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about Pacific Gales. Pacific Gales is, uh, it's been, for me, it's probably been 21 or two years now. Um, my partner, Jim Haley, who um, physically shaped the first golf course at Bandon Dunes and was fortunate enough to work for Charles Schwab and George Roberts and the Huntsman family. And uh, he worked for Pete Dye for a while. He worked for Reese Jones for a while, but was fortunate enough to overcome that. Um, I'm just teasing. Um, you know, he, he learned a lot, a lot there, obviously. Um, but Jim and I became partners formally about a decade or so ago on Pacific Gales. Um, and, and it's one of those projects where, for example, I was along with lots of other guys, I was interviewed and, and walked around banded dunes, um, before it was Bannon Dunes, Mike and I, and, and the aforementioned Bob Spence. Uh, Bob and I were going to be a design team um, along with, I think everybody in the business probably was interviewed and walked the property. Um, so it's not as if we were special by any stretch. But uh, I remember thinking to myself, boy, I should just sleep on Mike's stairs in order to be involved in this project. But uh, um, it turns out that, that Jim Haley... Um, hired a fellow named Jeff Knapp. Um, and it turns out they became good friends and still are. And, uh, we all are. And Jeff's family has a couple of ranches, um, on the Oregon coast, very similar to, uh, the property at Bannon Dunes. And after, uh, much effort and considerable, um, expenditure, uh, we've gotten to the point where we have a, uh, of, I, I don't want to use t- too much hyperbole, but it, it best golf course on the Pacific coast, um, when we're done, uh, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, and anybody who's seen the pictures looks at it and thinks, wow, um, I want to be part of that. And anybody who's on site, uh, we've had 
a lot of very smart people on site, and there have been some really heavy hitters who tried to acquire the property along the way. Um, but my partner Jim uh, has, a, has a great relationship with the family, and that's how that's why we're involved. But we've gotten to the point where, uh, for folks who love golf and understand that this may be once in a generation opportunity to be involved in in golf that is maybe as good as anything on this planet. Um, and I, Jim's been around the block and I'm not a complete rookie, but, um, it's very, very good. I've, I've had guys tell me, boy, if I could have been involved in banded dunes, like I, I could become a founder at Pacific Gales. When you think back 25 years ago for folks who might've had the opportunity to be involved in banded dunes. And obviously nobody was, it was Mike, Mike's baby, but um, we have a founders club at, at Band and Dunes that allows folks to, um, you know, have a hundred years of free golf uh, uh, for their family and the likes to to be part of our um, development team and um, maybe get to be part of one of the best golf courses on the planet. Um, the the physical characteristics of the site are very similar to the first golf course at Bannon Dunes, uh, except we have quite a bit more topography and we have a massive dune, um, not unlike Tom Doak's golf course there on the north end. Um, that is, that makes the place very, very special. Uh, so we've been working at it and, and spending our own money, kind of putting our money where our mouth is for about the last seven years, uh, maybe it's six years, gaining permits and, um, uh, setting this place up for a, for a build, uh, which I think will probably start or possibly start Christmas or new year's there about. Um, and that's just the first golf course. There may or may not be a second golf course, but, um, it, it, it's the opportunity to be involved in something this special is frankly, doesn't come along that often unless you happen to be Bill core, um, mm-hmm. or Ben Crenshaw or Tom Doak, or maybe Gil Hans. Um, but this may be better than anything they've ever had a look at. So, um, Jim and I made the determination that we're going to go all in and we are, and and we're very close to getting to the finish line and, um, are trying to make people aware of the opportunity that they have to, to jump in our boat and be part of something that's not only really special, but, um, if you've ever been involved in a build, um, and our guys will have full access to the site like nobody else will besides the media. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to be on the ground when these things are getting created. Uh, and they just don't come along very often, particularly in this, you know, economic environment. So, so, uh, so have you guys, uh, gotten like a routing done and, and, and everything, uh, for it or we do, we do. Uh, and, uh, the routing, the routing along the ocean and along the north side of the property, which overlooks the Elk River, which is just incredible fly fishing, um, overlooks the Cape Blanco Lighthouse and um, the Port Orford Reef. We've got 9 and 18, which finish on the ocean. We've got 17 and number 8, which are also sitting on the ocean. Uh, the We've got 6 to 8 holes on the ocean or with immediate views of the ocean um 
it was an awful lot of routing iterations. Like you said earlier, uh, walking the golf, uh, walking the property, trying to figure out a, a comfortable walk with or without clubs. Um, and that's kind of where we landed at Black Sheep. Uh, is it a comfortable walk, whether you have clubs or don't have clubs? And obviously the end purpose is, is to play golf over the ground. But um, I felt it was really important to add a little drama in terms of sequencing of the golf holes. Um, you know, as much as 10 years ago, I think I talked to Brad Klein uh, over a cocktail or two, and he had just been to Spyglass, and we were talking about the the gross effect of the routing of spyglass versus the experiential effect. Um, and I mean, gross is overall not grotesque. Um, the experiential effect of, of playing a pebble where you get to the ocean, you move away from the ocean, you get back to the ocean with a peak, you move away from the ocean. Then at, at pebble, you're fortunate enough to finish. Um, so, what we tried to do, and, and I think have done very successfully uh, in the routing, is give you the big bang on the first tee. So you're standing on top of the dune, looking at the ocean, overlooking the ninth and the 18th green. Um, you know, we may kind of have that same intimate physical space created by, uh, uh, I don't know if you ever played it, and crowded by the clubhouse. Uh, I want you crowded by the dune and the ocean as much as that's possible, kind of by a negative space that is the ocean. But And then the, the first green plays out to a, uh, a promontory with a, with a skyline, you know, infinity green, and then you move away from the ocean and get some views of Humbug, Humbug Mountain and the coastal range, and you come back into some uh, quieter away from the uh, ocean space and, and into some wetland areas that are just stunning. Um, and then we line you up with the Porterford lighthouse. You get back to the ocean, uh, fool around with the dunes and we're, 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 it's a good enough site that we're able to finish both nines on the ocean, uh, play a couple of holes on top of, you know, 60 foot five, 65 foot high dunes, um, right overlooking the ocean. Uh, and so, I'm not a hundred percent sure that we've got that we've squeezed every ounce of joy and drama out of the routing, but it's really, really good and somewhat theatrical and, uh, uh, people are absolutely just going to love the experience. And, and, and we were able to put the, the clubhouse on the ocean so you can hang out and have a cocktail of your choice. Uh, and we felt that was really important to, to differentiate ourselves from Bandon. Uh, I mean, obviously, abandons the yardstick by which any resort is measured, is per, let alone any resort that's within 20 miles of Bandon, which we will be. Uh, we're only a 25-minute drive away. Uh, so there's going to be obvious comparisons, and we know that. Um, so, so we made the determination that we need to be a little different than they are. Um, the business plan is a little different. We want to be smaller and quieter. Um, we won't ever have as much golf as they do, but, um, style wise, we need this golf course to be a little different and, uh, um, routing as much as I love the decision that Mike made to not put the clubhouse on the ocean. We think that's an important part of, of creating our own 
space and creating our own uh, unique character at Pacific Gales. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's cool. I mean, it's a it's a tricky. It's a, always a conundrum with uh, you know the the clubhouse and you know I think a, as a, as somebody who's an entrepreneur, I appreciate that you're you're creating your own unique path and and your own unique place that's that's different and meant to complement Bandon rather than you know being you know you know the the same you know and I think that that's right. something no, that I, a lot of exactly. people appreciate. Um, and it, and, and it clearly you do. I mean, you're you're doing the same thing. You're you're creating a product, uh, content creation that is that is unique and uh, you know not beholden to advertisers. And uh, you know people can trust your opinions and facts that you're not shilling for anybody else. And uh, yes, as, as an entrepreneur, and uh, we we definitely wanted to be unique. Uh, to Bandon, we didn't want to be perceived as the, the seventh golf course over there. Um, mm-hmm. As wonderful as that would be, uh, we need to take a different path to be successful and attract people in our own right rather than just relying on them spilling over from Bandon. We're very confident that people will want to come see us and stay with us and then also go see Bandon. I know that's a that's a pretty bold statement to make, but um, you know, the team we've got between Troy Russell, who was who was abandoned for the construction of four of the first four golf courses. Um, Jim obviously was there very early on. And like I said, I'm not a total beginner, but um, those guys have an awful lot more experience in that environment than I do. Um, but we're, we're just ridiculously thrilled to have, have fought through all of the obstacles that were placed in our way uh, and, and gotten to the point where, we're able to welcome folks into our founders club, which is, uh, which is kind of interesting. You know, Jim and I talked about it 10 years ago when he was working in London and he said, no, we need to be able to do something. He he called it the European model, uh, which was just kind of a placeholder name. Um, but it got us both thinking about, you know, a private club within a public operations model and, uh, you know, kind of the UK, model where there are clubs that use different clubs that use the same real estate. Um, and it turns out Mike Kaiser beat us to the punch. Uh, he used the same model uh, up in Sand Valley to, to populate his founders club. Uh, and historically, you know, we, I just talked about uh, Spyglass Hill, but Spyglass Hill, the, the great Samuel Morse uh, used kind of a founders club to, to fund his construction. Um, it worked out pretty well for them. They had his 200 guys had, I think 50 years of the first five or six tee times every day is what they gave away. And, and that, uh, Ron Witten, I think, or so, uh, somebody called that like the best deal in golf. And while, you know, our Pacific Gales founder club offers an awful lot more value, value than, than they did at, uh, at, at Spyglass Hill, I'm not sure we're the best deal in golf, but I'm not sure that we're not the best deal in golf. It's historically people are going to look back at this once the doors are shut and once we've reached our thresholds and go, geez, I can't believe I didn't get involved in that. Uh, I'm not going to say it's like Apple when it was, you know, selling at 12 or Microsoft because, you know, the, the profit motive is not there, but um, to be involved in something this special is is rare indeed, you know, once in a generation or two, even, you know, who knows whether we're going to be the last 
on, on the Pacific coast for you know, maybe ever. Uh, the, the, uh, it, it's very, very difficult to get these things permitted. Yeah. 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 I, that's, uh, I think the, the side of architecture that, that often goes, uh, overlooked is just the whole permitting. And just like you said at the beginning, the constraints that, that each project has. And I know, you know, Oregon has become very, very difficult, um, and protective of their coast, um, you know, in the recent years. Yep. So, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna get you out of here with our, uh, sure. our, over under overrated underrated tradition so we're gonna fire a couple um overrated underrated and uh anybody that's interested in pacific gales i'll I'll throw a link in the podcast uh on the page for uh the website um and i think all the info is on there uh it i'm excited shameless commerce division yeah i'm i'm a shameless commerce division of the friday uh having just talked about your economic uh and editorial integrity then, yeah. then we then we just throw egg on your face with that i'm so sorry but no it's, thanks no no it's, it's fine you, you it's a it, we're into cool golf course projects um i'm gonna go out <laughs> to portland for a bachelor party I'm, I'm gonna see if i can uh sneak down to bandon for a couple of days when i'm out there and uh also check out uh the the land you know i'll, I'll just be the guy cool. strolling around a uh big plot of land you know Looking, yeah, looking out are. into the vistas. <laughs> exactly, trying to visualize golf. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, so, over and under. All right, so uh, we're going to go with uh, to this week's uh, this week's golf course. You're a Columbus. You, you know, you spent a lot of time in Columbus. Uh, Muirfield Village, overrated or underrated? Um, I gotta say it's overrated. Um, the gotta say it's overrated i'm sorry jack it's a spectacular place but it's a, it, it kind of helped solidify the trend of more is more and in fact um i'm not sure more is always more yeah yeah i think uh i think that's the the gar the architecture crowd generally feels that way and then you know on the flip side the non-architecture crowd you know it's the greatest place in the world um, I haven't played it's it. Both. So it's it's no kind opinion. of as both, honestly. Yeah, it's an experience, right? It is. Yeah, we, the first time we played there with the team, I was almost afraid to take a divot. It was so well maintained, so much better maintained than anything I'd ever seen. Uh, you know, even here uh, at, at some of the very high budget places in Chicago, it was. I it was. I was. I literally had the feeling that I sh- maybe should not take a divot. Yeah. It's uh, so I spelled I, I it around in '82. Eh, that's I, I probably would shoot way worse than that. Um, what about uh, Jordan Spieth? Oh boy, not a lot of guys who've had the success here long term. Um, I would not that I would short that stock. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I I think if I was his agent, I would also. D Mike him. I, I don't think he does himself a lot of credit by having an open mic near him on the golf course. Um, you know, the AT&Ts and Coca-Cola's of the world don't need to hear him whining. Um, but that's more corporate than anything. Um, I, 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 somebody, I said that to somebody and, uh, he's clearly an enormous talent, but I, I, unless he's putting really, really well, I'm not sure he has the horsepower 
to be that good over the course of a couple of decades. Um, but of course, you know, he'll probably win 15 of them and, and prove me wrong. And, and I hope he does. It would be fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very conflicted. I, I think I, I appreciate, I, I just like his ability to get the ball in the hole. I think that's like an underappreciated aspect of golf is like the game around the greens, but uh, by the way, that's the only thing that matters <laughs> last I looked because nobody gives you a check for hitting it pure and not getting it up and down or, you know, striping it on the range. Uh, my son and I were talking about that. That's the only skill for which they pay you on the PGA tour is well, shooting less than everybody else. I think uh, they, you get and paid. You great just, at it. You're, you're an underachiever. Because you'll you'll make a ton of cuts, you'll have a lot of high finishes, but you won't have a lot of wins if you can't get the ball yeah. in the hole. You know, because like yep, absolutely. there's a slew of guys that hit the ball so good, and you're always like, why don't they win more? Well, it's like, well, they can't, mm-hmm. they can't chip, they can't putt. I mean, they still are really good at it. I mean, they're they're oh, better. No, than, absolutely. But they aren't as good as you know the elite. Um, so uh, next one, center line bunkers. Like in the fairway? Uh, I, I don't think they've gotten to the point of ubiquity and, you know, overuse. Uh, but maybe I haven't been getting out as much as, as I, I used to. Um, generally underrated. Uh, but another couple of years of them may be, all right, let's, let's move on. Uh, but we've done them where I've literally left the bunker in place. We did one on the 16th hole, for example, at Bellevue Billmore. Um, left a bunker in place and added, took out, took out some trees, added fairway, about 25 yards of fairway, new fairway that didn't exist before. And were criticized by, you know, a member or two for placing the bunker in the middle of the fairway. Um, when in fact, all we really did was add new fairway opposite. And, And so that's a hard it's a hard one for folks to get their head around. Not unlike mounds within a bunker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, that's unfair. Well, you know, if it's a long finger in the bunker, it's perfectly fine to, to some folks. But uh, uh, I, yeah, I, in, in, in the right situation where you have width, particularly on a second shot in the par five, which I think is probably the most ignored shot in architecture. Uh, I think they're they they can be used really really effectively in that scenario. Yeah, I I like I'm a big fan of centerline bunkers. I uh, I just think they put people in like a conundrum, and anytime you put people in a conundrum, it's it's great. You know, it's a good thing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Skokie Country Club. I played this place yesterday, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, not not on. Many. I don't think it's on any top 100 list. Just curious, where where you think it falls? Whether it's overrated, or underrated? Uh, probably underrated. Um, I think it might have been on one of the Golf Digest lists um, many years ago. Um, just because I was one of those guys many, many, many years ago. Um, but it's. Uh, it's a very, very strong golf course, and I like it a lot. Uh, Don Cross, the superintendent there, is is just a world class 
uh, guy and uh, a professional as well. He's, he's very good at his craft. Yeah, I was I I hadn't played in a number of years, and it you know I I always said it was in my like top five in Chicago, and it reaffirmed mm-hmm. itself. I I think it's so good. It's 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 just such a fun place to play. Yeah, um, it is a lot of variety in the holes, and you know you you mm-hmm. rarely play the same par twice uh, in a row. Um, hmm. Curious, cu- curious mm-hmm. curious what uh, your top five in Chicago would be. If you had to, if you had to make a list, get you um, out of here on a heater. Yeah, um, obviously it's black sheep. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, Shaw Golf Club and Shore Acres are easy ones to include on that list. Um, the one that nobody will ever get to see, um, and I'm obviously a homer in this case, is Lake Geneva Country Club. Uh, very much a period piece. Um, probably more foulless now than when foulless designed it. Uh, if, if you can't get there and almost nobody can, uh, it's definitely worth a couple hours of Google earth, uh, just kind of drooling over some of the little features that have been created in the square corners and the greens. Um, and, uh, boy, what is that five or is that four? It's uh, is wonderful, but it, that, that's not fair. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I love, I loved our, I loved Glenview club. Um, that's, that's a pretty good one too. Um, and like I said, it's a, that's a great space. I'm sure I'm choking my guts out. Um, but I, I, I I'm, drawing a blank beyond that hey you know it's uh it's there's there's so many good courses out here yeah it's just yeah and like you said i think outside of you know once you get shore acres and chicago golf it's almost like all from their personal taste yep absolutely i the other one i I really love that falls under the category of an incredible walk is bigfoot um in fontana the the physical prop yeah, uh, the physical property there, and again, we consult there, so um, it's cheating. But hey, you're uh, you're a company man, you know. I, I respect I, that. I am. I'm exactly. <laughs> it, it, you know, uh, it, whether you had golf clubs in your hand or whether you were just chasing frogs, it is a great place to spend time. Um, I mean, there's class one trout streams and and springs that bubble up out of the ground and. It's 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 kind of a magical place um, that just happens to have very good golf on it. Yeah, it's uh, I I haven't been out there since I played like a U.S. Junior uh, qualifier out there. I mean, that was decades ago. But I uh, something I, I that's a Lake Geneva is a cool place to get to spend some time. And uh, being mm-hmm. just not on just not on weekends. <laughs> Don't yeah. put it down on weekends in the summer. Being somebody that spent hours drooling over uh, Lake Geneva Country Club on Google Earth, it's definitely something that is is worthwhile. So, and then you'll you'll just you know spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how to get out there. So um, get out there. It's a, yeah. yeah. So um, well, Dave, I, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll do another one of these in the future. Uh, I'm. Uh, Excited to keep tabs on the uh, Pacific Gales project. That uh, golf can never have enough, you know, really, really great sites. And uh, everything I've heard from 
from you and also some you know non-biased parties is that it, it is uh it's got potential to be one of the greats it, it's really good and i appreciate you doing the company plug there um and, and i appreciate you staying awake for yeah. what has been six hours while i drone on about how wonderful uh, all of my work is yeah. um, th- thanks for having me Andy. i really appreciate it for sure well uh i appreciate your time and uh we'll talk soon all right look forward to it thanks right.